This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging, is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. And there's no doubt that my guest today epitomizes longevity. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Floyd Norman, who recently celebrated his 82nd birthday and he is still working, doing the job he loves as an animator for Disney. He's been doing that job for more than 60 years and despite being told at the age of 65 that he had to retire, Floyd is now an official Disney legend, which is a title presented by Disney and I think it's fair to say a shining example of someone who has with great dignity mastered the art of aging. Floyd, it's great to see you. Ah, thank you very much, Peter. Happy to be here. It's really uh, good to talk to you and uh, you are in fact uh, quite a busy man these days. I think I'm much busier <laughs> these days than I was when I actually sat at a desk full time every day. I think I'm much busier today. But that's a good thing because uh, being busy is a big part of staying young. What are you doing right now? Well, a number of things. I'm developing ideas for uh, television shows. Uh, that's keeping me busy. I'm working on a graphic novel. And I'm also uh, developing a new project, a uh, very old character, uh, Mickey Mouse, but developing some new ideas for Mickey Mouse that may or may not happen. We'll have, we'll have to wait to s- and see what Disney says about that. But I'm always busy doing something. You probably can't say anything about it, but it sounds quite an exciting project. Yes, it is. I can't speak about it in detail because it's still in development and we don't know where it's going to go from here. But that's what's great about my job. It just keeps me busy doing new things, trying new things, and uh, there's always a surprise around the corner. Now, I mentioned that at the age of 65, you were forced to retire. You didn't really have any say in the matter. <laughs> Let's just go back to those days. And uh, also later in the interview, I'd love to talk about your life and your experience over the past 60 years with right. Disney as an animator. But 65 years old, being asked to retire, what happened? Well, you know, it's there's not really an official retirement age uh, at, at the Disney Studio, nor probably for most corporations. It's probably something they'd rather not speak about. Although it was always understood that when one approached a certain age, that chances are they would be asked to uh, step down. Uh, even though it was not an official policy of the company, it always seemed that people would... Uh, you know, leave their, their job at, a, at around the age 60 to 65 or so. And we kind of just accepted that. So in my case, uh, it kind of crept up on me. I was so busy working, I didn't even realize I had turned 65 until I was called into the office one day and told there was no more work for me. And it wasn't until a little bit later I put it all together and realized, oh, <laughs> I've just turned 65. No wonder there's no more work for me. And how did you take that? I didn't take it well at first. I I, I felt as though I was being uh, pushed out. Although I must say, I was not the lone individual. This happened to a number of people. So it wasn't me alone. I didn't take it personally. But again, I wasn't happy about it. So you retired and you went away and you were sitting at home. Right. What did you do next? Well, I remember sitting at home in my backyard realizing that I was now a retiree, uh, a person, a man of leisure, you might say. (laughs) Which which some people aspire to. Indeed. Some people look forward to this all their lives. I mean, every working day, they look forward to the day when they don't have to go to work. In my case, I never look forward to retiring. So when it did happen, I was not pleased about it. And I did not like sitting in my backyard, even though it was a beautiful morning, Uh, I was very relaxed. Uh, I missed being busy. So what did you do about it? Well, I didn't do anything about it initially until I received a phone call from uh, Walt Disney Publishing. Uh, They were working on a series of books uh, based on some Pixar characters. They remembered that I had worked at Pixar Animation Studios some years earlier. 
knowing that I was familiar with the Pixar characters, they said, would you be willing to come in and help us out on these storybooks? And I said, boy, I'd be happy to because I'm not doing anything at home. So in a sense, I was called back to work, not as a full-time employee, but on a freelance basis. But no matter, that was enough to keep me busy, and uh, I leapt at the opportunity and went back to work for Disney Publishing. And do you look back on that as, in a sense, quite a, a relief, really, because the alternative was sitting in your backyard and, I suspect, maybe getting depressed about the situation? Oh, indeed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's important that you you stay busy, you, you keep your mind active. So when the opportunity uh, came from Disney, thankfully it came from Disney, they, in a sense, called me back to work, if only on a freelance basis, but uh, work is still work. I was delighted and I leapt at the opportunity. I think had they not called, I probably would have found something else to do. I mean, I wouldn't have sat in my backyard doing nothing. I would have found something to do. Eventually, you know, I, I would have invented a job for myself. But I'm wondering, did how psychologically how you were coping before you had that phone call to go back to work on a freelance basis? Right. How were you dealing with it psychologically? Well, initially, I was, I think I would say I was pretty bitter about it. So the way I express myself, usually it's in a series of cartoon gags. So I did a lot of uh, cartoon jokes about my being not necessarily sacked from Disney. But being asked to leave, so I expressed my bitterness through a series of gag cartoons, which I shared with my friends and colleagues. And it was everything from me uh, eating Mickey Mouse <laughs> to <laughs> any number of things that were probably uh, in poor taste. But uh, they helped me uh, cope with my situation. So I got those things off my chest. And how did your family cope with it? Well, most of my kids had moved on. Uh, they had their own lives. So really, my family probably barely knew I was not working. I mean, they were away. They were living their lives. So only my wife was truly aware of my situation. She knew how truly unhappy I was. And so she was concerned about me. Am I right in thinking your wife works in the business as well? Yes, she does. My wife is a talented illustrator who works for Disney Publishing Worldwide. So she's an artist. And so she fully understood when an artist is not busy, uh, how depressed uh, and unhappy they can be. And she knew clearly then very well the world that you had stepped out of right. and the world that really had been your life up until that point. Very true. Very true. Uh, my wife knew that my work was more than just a job. Uh, for me, it was probably more an obsession. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I know I, I have often confessed that I've taken this job a bit too far. Uh, I recall going on vacations with my family and taking work along with me. Uh, people thought I was just nuts <laughs> for doing that. Why would anybody take work with them on their vacation? But I would do that, you know. Uh, I would go on holiday and take my work along with me because I couldn't help myself. Or maybe it was because you didn't really see it as work. You, Indeed. It was something that you loved. That's very true. Uh, the reason I did that, for me, it was never work. It was just what I did, but it was more important. It was who I was. So this experience led you to develop some quite strong views about ageism and the situation that you found yourself in. How did you deal with that? Well, I knew that uh, ageism was, uh, you know, it, it, it's always been there. It just, I never thought about it that much until it affected me. So once it became personal, then I began to really look at this whole concept of aging and an older person suddenly being thrust out into retirement some people love it. Some people absolutely adore <laughs> being retired, and others cannot stand it. I recall one old gentleman. Uh, he was the father of one of our employees who suddenly found himself um, unemployed. Not unemployed, but retired. And he wasn't happy about it. And so sadly for him, he did nothing. He sat around the house, and he began to stew about it. And uh, he was very unhappy and sadly, uh, and I think this is all a state of mind too, his health began to suffer. And he began to, uh, as we say here in America, he began to lose it. 
And uh, I remember one day he couldn't even find his way home. He was, he was driving home from wherever he had been, and he lost his way. And sadly, I saw this old gentleman begin to break down simply because he had nothing to do. He wasn't busy, and so he began to, to lose it, as they say. And eventually, he passed on. But I think in many ways, what took his life was the fact that he had nothing to do. Therefore, nothing to live for. And did that prey on your mind to some extent, that you were in that situation and that this career, this extraordinarily successful career that you had had, had at least officially come to an end? Well, I knew that in my case, uh, I was not going to allow that to happen to me. So where I could uh, truly sympathize with the gentleman who had nothing to do, I knew that I could always keep myself busy. I knew that I could find something to do. As I said before, if I didn't have a job, I could create one. And which I've done oftentimes anyway, many times when I was much younger and uh, there was a bout of unemployment and I simply could not find a job, my partners and I would simply create a job. Can't find one, then you make one up. Uh, But the important thing is you manage to stay busy. And you said that this issue of ageism didn't really occur to you until you found yourself in that situation, perhaps uh, as a victim yes. of ageism. So I wonder, as uh, looking uh, at this problem as a whole, as, as a as an umbrella problem that affects many companies and many individuals, right? what can be done about ageism? You know, I really don't know, especially when it comes to uh, the corporation, because after all, the corporation, uh, they have their own agenda. They have their own interests. And so they're not really concerned what happens to an employee once that employee leaves the company. Uh, Basically, that employee uh, retires and they're on their own. So it's not really a concern of the corporation. And I really don't think they give it much thought. Uh, The person has uh, served the company well over a number of years. And now it's time to move on. And that's the way they see it. It's a time to simply move on and let a younger person step in to that position. Now, actually, I see nothing truly wrong with that because, after all, some older workers, perhaps it is time for them to step down and make way for younger workers just out of university and looking to build a career. So in one sense, I could almost sympathize with the corporation. And yet I feel I wish there was some kind of transition where a younger worker could still come in and an older worker can be retained, at least for a a period of time until that uh, younger worker is up to speed. And perhaps an acceptance that older people are different, and indeed some, as you've expressed, want to retire at at 65. They have other things to do. There's always the the job in the yard that they've always wanted to get around to, that perhaps that scenario suits them. Others, perhaps creative people, just want to continue creating. So there isn't one rule that fits all. No, no. Yeah, people are different. I, I remember back in the 1960s when I was still a fairly young man, and we were sitting in our office at the Walt Disney Studio, and this older gentleman comes in, and he was, he was happy. He said, uh, my wife and I, uh, we've just sold our home. We are going to travel the world. He says, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to retire, and my wife and I are going to uh, travel the world. And he was looking forward to it. He was looking forward to not working and to, you know, beginning the next phase of his life. So some people, you know, we all take it differently. Uh, another person might be really upset about losing that uh, that job that they, uh, you know, that they would do every day and to see that come to an end. So, yeah, people are different and uh, everybody has their own, uh, you know, their own end game, you might say. You know, some people plan to maybe begin a new career. I've, I've uh, had friends who literally walked out of Disney after being an artist for a number of years and then took up another profession altogether. Uh, you just never know. One person actually uh, became a physician. He went from being an artist at the drawing board and he became a doctor. He went to medical school? Yes, because that's what he wanted to do. What age it, did he do it, that? Oh, he was already up in years. Uh, not that old, of course. He was probably around 40 in his early 40s. But uh, for him, there was still time. It wasn't too late. 
Nothing is impossible. Nothing is, yeah, if you have that dream and that desire. And I mentioned earlier that you fairly recently celebrated your 82nd birthday. Indeed. Do you feel every bit as as vibrant (laughs) and as enthusiastic about life and work as you did, let's say, those 60 years ago when you first started working for Disney? I do so uh, mentally, (laughs) not so much physically. Uh, There is a reality that your body does get older. You do age, whether you like to admit it or not. So whereas I look at myself at age 82, I don't feel or think that differently than I did when I was 32. But I do know that I cannot do the things I did when I was a young man. And that's just a reality. When I try to work late nights, I simply get tired. And I need sleep. I need rest. I just can't go all night like I did when I was a young man. So, And I think we all experience that. Oh, yes. Yes, we do. Yeah, that's just the reality of aging. And I've got to say, obviously, this is audio. I'm sitting opposite you. <laughs> you look a very fit and healthy 82-year-old to me. I think I am simply blessed with good genes. Uh, You've got that longevity gene that so many people talk about. Yeah, people think that I'm uh, doing something, that I'm really working at it, that I've got this special diet, that I've got this amazing exercise program. The fact is I I simply don't do that much out of the ordinary. I I try to uh, walk as much as I can because I think that's healthy to stay physically active. I do a lot of walking. My diet is not all that unusual. I, I don't think it's – it's not some uh, weird American diet where you know <laughs> we have plenty of those here. But no, my, my diet is fairly normal. I don't, I don't do anything radical. But I think I'm simply blessed with uh, genes given to me by my parents and grandparents that uh, you know keep us looking younger and healthier for a, a good long time. So – so diet-wise, you eat meat and you eat a variety of foods. You eat three meals a day or major meals a day. Well, I'll tell you what. My diet has changed along with my aging. Now, that's true. That, that is a change that age has uh, placed upon me. I tend to eat only two meals a day rather than three. Hmm. So, and simply because I don't need it. You know, it, I, I suppose I could sit down to three meals a day, but I really don't need, uh, I really don't need to consume that much food. I also tend to eat less meat as I have grown older. Uh, I eat more fish and, uh, and maybe on occasion chicken, but uh, probably less red meat. Uh, not because, you know, there's any um, health reasons. It's just that I feel I just don't need that much. And so in a sense, I've, I've modified my diet as I've grown older. And it seems to work, you know, it's worked all right. Well, you say, say no health reasons, but maybe without really thinking about it, there are health reasons and, Could and, be. and it's paying off for you. Could be. The, the fish diet and uh, the two meals a day. Which, yeah. which two meals do you have? You have breakfast and dinner? I, I mix it up. Uh, sometimes I'll have breakfast and I'll skip dinner. Sometimes I'll have uh, lunch and dinner and skip breakfast. You know, it, it doesn't matter how you break it down. It's just uh, one meal is eliminated. So there's only two meals a day. And I get by just fine with that. And there's no snacking between meals? I tend not to snack. Uh, I think a lot of Americans are uh, heavily into snacks. And I think snacks are probably not good for you unless they're healthy snacks. Uh, Fruit, uh, nuts, things like that probably uh, wouldn't do that much damage. But uh, I tend not to snack. And generally, once I start working, I I tend to forget all about food. As a matter of fact, I'm, I, I would often miss lunch at work if somebody didn't come and interrupt me and say, hey, it's time to go to lunch. I would just work right through my lunch hour and not even think about lunch. So you see, now that I'm digging a little deeper, yes, <laughs> your diet is very, very interesting and, uh-huh. and your lifestyle. And, and clearly it's been like this for some time. It's not something that I've planned. It's not something that I worked out. It's just sort of evolved over time. And it's working for you. And it seems to work for me. So I've mentioned a few times the uh, 60 years ago, uh, actually more than 60 years now, when you first started working uh, at Disney, indeed with Walt Disney for about a a decade. Yeah. Well, let's say I was able to be at the studio. Uh, I was employed at the Walt Disney Studio when Walt Disney still ran the, the company. I didn't actually work with Walt Disney, uh, sadly, until the last year of his life. And that's when I found myself on the story team of the feature film The Jungle Book and uh, a film that I had, oddly enough, tried to avoid. (laughs) I really didn't want to work on the film. And 
the biggest surprise of my life was when my boss called me in one Friday afternoon, one late Friday afternoon, and said I would be working on the story team of The Jungle Book. Now, I immediately knew there was something very odd about this because a position on Walt Disney's story team is highly sought after. Many, many people want that job, and if one would apply for the job and be considered for the job, they would have to go to a great deal of uh, training and procedures and protocol. And here I was, immediately being placed on the movie. Overnight, that kind of thing doesn't happen. Well, it does happen if one man wants it to happen. The only man with that kind of power was Walt Disney himself. And so when the, the word came down I was going to be starting Monday morning on The Jungle Book, I knew who made that decision. And do you know why he made that decision? Well, only Walt knows that. (laughs) (laughs) Walt was unhappy with The Jungle Book. Uh, He felt the film wasn't entertaining. It wasn't funny. It wasn't charming. And he was very uh, displeased with what uh, our head writer, Bill Pete, had done with his adaptation of the Kipling novel. Walt Disney was well aware of my sense of humor because my cartoon gags were all over the studio. I have no doubt that Walt Disney saw my gags because they were literally pinned all over the Disney studio. We had this marvelous machine called Xerox, and that meant people could take a cartoon gag of mine, make multiple copies, and put them everywhere. That means I had no doubt that Walt Disney saw my gags somewhere around the Disney studio. So like when you retired, you expressed your frustration through animation yeah. and, and through drawings. And through drawings. This is something you did all your life just for a joke. Exactly, uh, because that's what I am. I'm a cartoonist. I'm a jokester. I just make fun of myself and other people. And so these jokes were pinned all over the studio because people enjoyed my sense of humor. I like to think because they uh, thought they were funny. Uh, apparently, Walt Disney thought they were funny as well. Since humor was lacking in the feature film, The Jungle Book, Walt said, looks like I found a guy who's funny. I want him on the movie. Uh, This was never uh, expressed to me officially, but I could put things together and uh, see why Walt made that decision. He wanted more humor. He wanted more gags. He wanted more fun. He expressed this over and over again. I want this movie to be funny. And it wasn't funny. And so here he had this young kid drawing cartoons all the time. And that's when I, and I, I must confess, I drew cartoons every day. And so here he saw this crazy young kid drawing funny cartoons. And he probably said, put this kid on the Jungle Book. He's the guy for the He's job. He's the guy for the job. Make, make it funny. Yeah. yeah. And what was life like generally at Disney those days? And for you, was it always, was this a dream come true? Was oh, this the was. job you always wanted to a do? A job I all the dream job. How many people get the opportunity to gain their dream job? I had fantasized about this job as a child, dreamed about it through middle school, through high school. One day I'm going to work for Walt Disney. I'm going to be at the Disney studio. That dream came true. 1956, uh, the studio called me and said, come to work. See, I had applied for the job uh, some years earlier, and the studio didn't hire me, but they gave me good advice. They said, young man, go to school (laughs) and get an education and learn how to be an artist. Then come back and talk to us. Well, in my third year of school, uh, I received a call from the Disney studio, and they said, time to come to work. They called me. And so my career began. And the atmosphere at a burgeoning company like that at that time must have been quite exhilarating. It was. It was an amazing time. Think about it now. The Disney studio had been around for decades, so it's hardly a new studio. But it was going through a transition. Walt Disney was not only making short cartoons and feature films. He had just entered television, doing a weekly television show on ABC, doing a daily television show on ABC. And also, they had just opened a theme park uh, in Anaheim, Disneyland. So that whole thing was going. So there were just so many things going on. Uh, Live-action films being made at the Disney studio, both in Burbank and in the UK. It was just a very active time, a very exciting time. And it seems that Walt Disney couldn't do enough. He He had so many plans. He couldn't get these plans off the drawing board fast enough. 
So for a young kid like me coming to Disney at that time, it was like a creative explosion. And to be there in the thick of it was just incredible. And what was Walt Disney like? You say you didn't really get to work with him until the final year of his life. Right. As a character, there are so many stories about his style of management and his personality. Yeah. Well, I didn't. You know, it's almost a decade later that I finally had the opportunity to work with Walt Disney. So there were at least 10 years where all I did was see Walt Disney, you know, walking down the hallway or walking around the studio a lot. Didn't really know him. Uh, Finally worked up the courage to say hello, you know, (laughs) or hi, Walt. You couldn't say Mr. Disney. He did not like being called Mr. Disney. It was always hello, Walt, or good morning, Walt. You you learned that uh, straight away. So anyway, uh, Walt was a great manager. He was a man who loved his work. He enjoyed his job. He loved being the boss. He was a strict boss, a demanding boss, but in no way a difficult boss to work with. I I never found him so. I I found Walt to be a perfectionist, a man who knew what he wanted, but uh, I never found him difficult. Not once. I never found him difficult. He, uh, I, have, I have no problem with the man who uh, expects the best from his employees. And that's what he expected, and that's what I tried to uh, deliver. And do you think you took that attitude to some extent yourself through your career in terms of delivering the best? I would like to think so. I would like to hope so. I always try to, even when I've been on, and I've worked on some pretty bad things throughout my <laughs> career, <laughs> but I always try to, uh, to do my best. And you've worked on some pretty good things as well. What, you know, what, what comes to mind? True. What that's comes true. to mind if you had to? And this is always an impossible question, but can you tell me your favorite Disney animation that you worked on? Oh my! Because there have been so many. You know, I was thinking about that uh, driving here this morning when I uh, reflected on the kind of work that I've been doing the, throughout my career. There are a lot of people, very talented people, who just never had the opportunity to work on what I would call good content. Always mediocre, marginal stuff. But I've been associated with so many uh, stellar projects at Disney. I mean, I go back to Sleeping Beauty, this gorgeous feature film, uh, The 101 Dalmatians. Uh, That's a great film. Uh, I love yeah, that film. Yeah, a wonderful film. Uh, the Jungle Book, I, Mary Poppins. Then going up to Pixar to develop Toy Story 2 and Monsters Incorporated. I look back on my career and I think I've had the opportunity to work on some really, really fascinating projects, really good stuff. And I'm so grateful for that because it could have been, you know, uh, my list could have been pretty mediocre. (laughs) There are some people who really don't have a single stellar thing on their resume because it it wasn't their fault. It's just those projects never came their way uh, during that point in their career. And for me, it was just one stellar project after another. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with amazing people. Incredible people have simply come my way, literally walked into my office, as Douglas Adams did one morning, who simply popped into my office one morning, and I just looked up and said, oh, my God, it's Douglas Adams. (laughs) Things like that happened to me, and I consider myself a very lucky individual. And you didn't just work for Disney. You worked for Hanna-Barbera. Yes, I did. Scooby-Doo? Scooby-Doo, yes, indeed. What was that like? Oh, it was a job. Uh, When you're working on Saturday morning television, it is just that. Uh, There's limited time. There's limited money. It's kind of churning it out experience? Yes, you you have to. It's the nature of the business. And we knew we were working in television. We couldn't lavish uh, artistic, uh, you know, expression on, on this TV product. We simply didn't have uh, the time. We simply didn't have the money. It's interesting, so. it's interesting how the gulf between television and film at that yeah. movies at that stage in, in time was so big. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, you make that adjustment. And I tell people, I said, and I especially, especially tell my young students that you learn to adapt. Uh, you won't be working on uh, marvelous stuff your whole career. Sometimes you will be working on a very low-budget TV show. You might be working on a television commercial or you might be working on internet content that has a very, very low budget. But what you do is adjust to the uh, to the platform you're working on and you do your best work within the limited confines of, 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 uh, of that job. 
And that's what you do. And so I found myself, if it's if I'm working on a feature film that costs over $100 million or I'm working on a, a low-budget internet show that budget is $1.95, <laughs> you do your best in each medium because it is what it is. And uh, as an artist, as a creative individual, you just give it your best. But you recognize you can't bring uh, feature thinking to a little uh, internet uh, show that has a very, very limited budget. You just have to make those adjustments. And if you do so, then you, you stay happy and uh, you have a happy and uh, fruitful career like mine. Now, there was, of course, a break in your career when you went off to serve your time in the military. Yes, I did. How was that for you? You know, uh, it was simply looked upon as an obligation. Uh, young men were called to serve their country in the military, and I knew my time would be coming. My older brother uh, was drafted into the uh, into the army when he had reached a certain age, and uh, he was sent overseas. And I knew uh, that my day would come eventually when I hit hit the right age. And uh, sure enough, that letter came in the mail from the from the government, and it, it truly did say greetings. <laughs> I thought that was always a joke, but the letter actually starts with greetings. You have been invited to join the <laughs> the United States military. Very polite. They're very polite, and uh, and and uh, you have, I believe, it was a four year obligation. Two years active duty and two years reserve duty. And that was the obligation we all uh, uh, gave to our country. And so uh, I, I didn't – it didn't come as a surprise because I knew it was coming. And so I, I – um, when my time came, I packed my bags and headed for the military base to go through my basic training. After that, I was sent overseas to the uh, Far East to um, take up residence in uh, Korea, uh, very close much too close to Panmunjom, the <laughs> the dividing line between North and South Korea. Mm. But uh, it all worked out. I spent 14 months in Korea and made it back safely. When you hear about Korea, North Korea, South Korea being in the news these days, do you does it give you pause? Do you reflect on those times? Oh, I do. I do very much, especially because I, I actually lived there for a period of uh, 14 months. So it, it's not just a, uh, a spot on a map. It's not just a, a country you hear about casually on the news. Mm, there are real people there. Real people there are very real place. Uh, I walk the, uh, you know, the rice paddies of, uh, of Korea. So for me, it was, uh, in a sense, it was my home for 14 months. And I remember the landscape. I remember the, uh, the oxen, you know, pulling, <laughs> pulling the, Plows or plows. That, that's plows? what they're doing. So all of that is very real. That's not just a you know. It's a very real memory because I was there, and thankfully made it home safe again. Did you get much opportunity to draw while you were there? Once my commanding officers, <laughs> they always find out. Once my commanding officer found out I was a Disney artist, they came up with all kinds of jobs for me to draw. Disney cartoons. One officer even wanted me to paint a mural uh, on the wall of the uh, mess hall. That is the uh, dining uh, room of the uh, the military base. And so um, up near the uh, the kitchen where the uh, soldiers would line up to get their food, he wanted this um, broad mural to cover the walls showing the uh, the United States Cavalry in triumph. And so I had men on horseback and, uh, you know, and uh, dashing gallantly over the mountains <laughs> into battle. I had to make all this up and I had to use house paint. You know, keep in mind, I was in a war zone. So we didn't have, uh, you know, paints and brushes the way an artist would have. And we didn't have art supplies like that in Korea. So I just said, get me some house paint. And we'll make it work. So uh, I gathered uh, some brushes and some house paint, and I painted this uh, ridiculous mural <laughs> of the United States cavalry uh, charging up a hill in battle, you know. But uh, these are the things that kept me busy when I wasn't being a soldier. And they liked that? Oh, yes. They, they loved it. They, they loved it very much. I'm sure yeah. they did. Yeah. <laughs> and did you use drawing? Did you, did you draw cartoons to express your own feelings about life at that time, as you've already talked about when you retired and at Disney, putting those little posters on, on the walls? Did you use your time in the military to express yourself in that way? 
Not so much. I found that when I was in the military, I was kept so busy. I I really didn't have time to uh, express my frustration. As a matter of fact, all of us were probably frustrated anyway, so I I wasn't any different uh, from my colleagues. So, uh, But, you know, every now and then I would do a drawing or two. But I I really had no way to distribute artwork. So unlike my days at Disney when I could do a drawing and, and distribute that drawing, through uh, throughout the studio, here in the military, all I could do is do one drawing and pin it up on the wall, and people would have to share it because we had no way of duplicating that drawing. You mentioned earlier that you went to work for Pixar. You worked on Toy Story. Yes. Uh, when producer Ralph Guggenheim paid us a visit one late Friday afternoon, he was actually looking for help from Disney. Keep in mind that at that time, this was around 1996, Pixar was still a very young studio. Uh, They had only made one feature film, Toy Story. Many could easily have regarded that film as a fluke. Maybe they just got lucky. So the attitude of Pixar being this uh, creative uh, powerhouse, uh, those attitudes hadn't come about yet. And so when producer Ralph Guggenheim came to Disney looking for talent, most of the people at Disney said, we're happy here. We really have no interest in, uh, in changing our situation. In my case, I said I would be delighted to move up north and work with the young people up at Pixar. And so I was the first one to volunteer. And you were very handy with the camera and uh, various momentous events have taken place here in Los Angeles in, in your oh. hometown <laughs> over the years. And you made quite a, a name for yourself during the riots. I don't think I made a name for myself because, keep in mind, we were anonymous. We were just simply, I think they— Maybe after the fact. After the fact, yeah. Yeah. I think they would probably use the term stringers. I think that's what they call freelance camera guys who would go out and shoot footage. Freelance journalists generally are are stringers. Stringers, that's right. You write the words or take the pictures. That's right. So here's what happened. It was uh, not official at all. Uh, In 1965, uh, the riots broke out in Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles literally went up in flames. I was on the streets of Watts during that time, and it was an incredible time. It was like being in a war zone. Having already been in a war zone in Korea, this was not all that new to me. So my partners and I had an idea. We had two movie cameras. Why not take those cameras into the riot area and photograph the 1965 Los Angeles riots, and that's exactly what we did. We took that footage we shot out to NBC television. They saw the footage, and they immediately wanted to buy it. We were kids, and we didn't know. Uh, you know, We just sold it because you know, we were just happy that somebody wanted it. Well, anyway, that uh, film footage did go on the air nationwide, and so in a sense, I guess we made, made our mark by photographing the Watts riot. We did so uh, at a time when the media, the mainstream media, was terrified of going into the riot area. I think that's why our footage was so unique, because we were the only people uh, willing or crazy enough to venture into the riot area and put our own lives at risk. But we did so, I think, by virtue of the color of our skin. Keep in mind, we were in uh, the black area of Los Angeles. We were young black men. We wouldn't stand out. You know, we would blend right in. So for us, it was a perfect opportunity to go film out in the open and nobody was going to bother us because, you know, we fit right in. And so uh, the color of our skin became an advantage in this particular situation. And of course, such a, a contrast to now when everyone has a camera. Oh, everyone yes. Everyone has yeah. a phone camera. <laughs> that, the, the L.A. riots would mean nothing today because everybody would be photographing the riot. Everybody who did has it, a smartphone in their pocket. Did what you achieved during that time, did it tempt you to go into documentary making and perhaps leave animation behind? Uh, did it potentially open up a new kind of career for you? I think it showed us the power of a documentary. And in time, we would produce documentaries when uh, I would eventually leave Disney, uh, launch my own production company, uh, Vignette Films Incorporated, and we indeed would make documentaries. So in, in a sense, we sort of stumbled into becoming documentary filmmakers. Was that easy to launch that business? It was not difficult to launch a business 
it was difficult to raise money for that business. That was the hard part. And is this the business you used to work out of cafes or wherever you could find a table and just very, set up, set up yourself and use the phone <laughs> if you could find one in the corner? Very true. I was thinking about that this morning when I uh, went into a coffee shop and there were a number of young men and women seated at tables, usually with their laptops open. That's not looked upon today as anything unusual. I think in, in many coffee shops, uh, business is being conducted in the coffee shop. Well, that, that's the, the startup experience these days. It really it? Just is. Just find a table and a chair and a cup of coffee. And exactly. Of that, you've got your mobile that, phone and your laptop, <laughs> which makes it different. That's how you launch your business. Just find a coffee shop. Well, keep in mind, for us, this was very, very unusual to do what we did back in the uh, – this would be the 1960s. So when we moved into a coffee shop in Hollywood, uh, what we did was, was very much uh, unorthodox. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be considered at, at all strange today. But back in the 1960s for uh, a group of filmmakers to simply simply move into a coffee shop and start conducting business, that was most unusual. Just ahead of your time, Floyd, I think. We really were. And the fact I, I, I mentioned that there were no cell phones back then, no smartphones. So we actually used the coffee shop's payphone as our office phone number. Because it was the only way people could reach us. You know, you have to give them a phone number. How, how can they call you if there's no phone number? Again, no smartphones back then. So as long as they had the phone number of the coffee shop, if that phone rang, we knew it was a call for us. You would jump up and answer it. Exactly. In your that, company name. Exa- that's exactly what we did. <laughs> so, so we were pioneers. <laughs> it sounds good. Uh, you mentioned seeing young people today in, right. in a coffee shop. Does that inspire you? Because I know you work with and, and you do encourage young people, especially in, in the field of, of animation that you work in. But um, do you relish the opportunity to use your or share your wisdom in terms of the business? Oh, my, yes. Uh, one of the things that I never wanted to become, speaking of aging, I never wanted to become the grouchy old man. I never wanted to be that cranky old man who says, you kids get off my lawn. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that caricature of, of this cranky old codger who's yelling at kids, you know, to get off his lawn. One of the things I've always loved is engaging with young people. And that's why I spend so much time speaking with students, uh, traveling to universities uh, across the country, because I really do admire young people and I so enjoy working with them. A lot of older people f- complain about young people. They they claim that they're spoiled, they're pampered, and they're self-indulgent, and they're lazy, and they're not motivated. And maybe to a degree, some of these things are true. But what I've found with young people, the ones that I've had the opportunity to engage, they're ambitious, they're fearless, they're dreamers, they're passionate, and I love that. Most are the age of my grandchildren. I find that quite amazing when I when I, I meet with these young people and I ask, "How old are you anyway?" And a young woman a young woman would say, "I'm 23 years old." And I said, "My granddaughter is 23." <laughs> but it's 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 quite wonderful to see this new generation coming up and to see them with the the stars in their eyes and the dreams because I had those dreams too when I was a kid. I had uh, those ambitions as well when I was a kid, and to see the young people carry this on, it gives me hope for the future. I'm not the grumpy, grouchy old man who says, uh, you know, the world is going to hell because these young people are just so terrible. I find the young people to be our hope. They encourage me. They inspire me. And, uh, you know, I love them. I think they're great. And what is the one of the perhaps most common questions that you get from young people? What do they want to learn from you? They ask the same questions I asked when I was a kid. You know, some things never change. When I was a kid, I would sit down with the Disney old timers and I would say, tell me about the old days. I want to know what it was like over on the Hyperion in the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles when you young men and women were just beginning to create this business to make movies and that none of you were university trained, you know, a few had an education. They were just young men and women and they were basically creating a business on the fly. They hadn't done it before. They didn't quite know how to do it. 
but they were making it up as they went along. That was a very exciting time for Walt Disney. Walt was still a young man then, and his staff, young men and women, and they were creating a business. Think how exciting that must have been to have been at Hyperion back in the 1930s. And I wanted to know about that time, and I would sit down with these older men and women and say, tell me about what it was like at Hyperion back in 1934. I wanted to know. So the young people asked me, tell me about Disney in 1955. What was it like in 55? What was it like in 1965? What was it like working with Walt Disney on The Jungle Book? They want to know these things, and I, I understand why they want to know. They're asking the same questions I asked when I was a young kid, newly arrived at Disney, asking these old-timers, what was it like to work on Pinocchio, you know? What did you feel when you were doing Fantasia? Did you feel like you were breaking new ground? Did you feel like you were experimenting, doing, the, uh, doing something that had never been done before? What was that like for you guys? So, you know, I wanted to know. And the young, when the young kids come to me and they ask questions, I understand why they're asking because I'm one of them. And it's interesting that because I think what they're asking that for is that they are aspiring to the same level of greatness in exactly. terms of the final product. Interestingly, though, using entirely different technology. I mean, you right. didn't really use technology no, in your no, day, did you? No, no, Not at all. As a matter of fact, I, I gave a talk at Apple when I uh, spoke about technology and creative imagination. And I said uh, back in the 1930s, back in the 1940s, we didn't have digital, you know, it wasn't even a dream at that time. So we had to work with the technology of the time. Everything was analog. Everything was nuts and bolts and hammers and screws and light bulbs and switches. You know, it crude and primitive by today's standards, but it was all we had. And yet we were able to do, and Walt Disney, of course, was able to do amazing things with that technology because it was still technology, the technology of its time, but still technology nonetheless. And so, uh, yeah, now with digital, uh, we can do so much more. But uh, it's really no different than Walt Disney and Ub Iwerks, what they were trying to create and build back in the early 40s at the Walt Disney Studio. And as an animator, have you yourself evolved with the technology? Do you use all the modern day tools at your disposal? Oh, you bet. Another way to stay young is to not be left behind, to not become an old dinosaur. Uh, many of my colleagues grumbled about using a computer. Uh, I don't want to use that new fangled machine. It's too difficult. It's too complicated. I don't know why the kids use this darn thing. No, no, not at all. I wanted to learn to use the computer. I wanted to learn software applications. I wanted to edit film digitally. I started out with moviolas. Back in the old days, that's how we edited film on this loud, clackety old machine. Then we moved to the flatbeds and Steenbecks and Kims to edit film. It was still physical film, though, we were cutting. But today we edit on a computer, and it is a marvel. I was editing film just the other night, uh, sitting in my bedroom on my laptop, cutting film on a laptop using software. Technology can be a marvelous thing. It's not a hindrance. It helps you to be even more creative because it uh, removes all of the things that uh, would become, you know, things that would get in your way. The technology clears the way and allows you to be more creative, you know, because it takes away all of the uh, cumbersome aspects of, uh, you know, film editing. In this particular case, I was editing film. But I used the technology, and, uh, you know, that's important. And I do some of the same thing, so I'm going to delve a little deeper there. What, what, which software do you use to edit? Ah, I've used several um, applications. I started out using Premiere. and uh, Which is what I use now. Really? How about that? Adobe Premiere. Yeah. An entertainer once at, at an Apple show up in San Francisco told me that I should try Final Cut Pro. And I complained. I said, it costs $1,000. <laughs> and he, says, he said, I don't care. Buy it anyway. So I did buy it, and so I began to learn Final Cut Pro. And I, and I became pretty good at it. And then Apple totally rewrote it. <laughs> they totally, from top to bottom, they rewrote Final Cut Pro. And so I thought, now I'm going to have to learn this application all over again. Mm-hmm. But you know what? This is a challenge for an old codger to, in a sense, reinvent himself. I set myself to it, 
and I relearned to edit with the new version of Final Cut Pro, even though that meant unlearning everything I had learned and starting fresh and new. This is how you keep your mind going. This is how you stay young and, and vital and active by not clinging to the past, but by moving on to the future. And I think a lot of people grow old because they don't want to move forward. And if you don't move forward, then you will grow old. It's very refreshing to hear you say that because there is a sense, I think, uh, from a lot of people that it is all about the past and the past was better, which yeah. isn't always – it's, it's, it's okay, I think, to be sentimental right. to a certain point That's about true. the past. But the future is where it is. Yeah. Well, you know, the past is comfortable because it's what we know. And so I, I understand how seductive uh, nostalgia can be because you look back on the good old days, the way things used to be, and that's all well and good. But that was the past, and the future is ahead of you. What I love about the young people, they keep me focused on the future because that's where they're headed. If I'm taking that trip with them, you know, in a sense, they're pulling me along, and they're keeping me younger longer because I'm taking that journey with them. Not hanging on to what used to be, but looking forward to what can be. And do you have aspirations for your own future? What would you like to achieve that you, <laughs> you haven't managed to quite get there yet? At age 82, you know, I don't know if one... Uh, I, I remember Walt Disney, uh, during the last year of his life, uh, confiding to his son-in-law, Ron Miller, that if he only had 15 more years of life, just 15 more years, the things he could do, the things he could accomplish in that 15 years. Well, unfortunately, Walt Disney did not have 15 more years. His life ended uh, not long after that conversation with his son-in-law. So the way I look at life is I take it one year at a time. What can I accomplish in one year? And if I can do that... What can I accomplish in the next year? And so uh, I don't look ahead to, you know, 10 years, 20 years in the future because I don't know if I'm going to make it there. But I can look forward to next year, and that's good enough for me. It's a great attitude. Floyd Norman, it's been a real pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. Thank you very <laughs> much indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you, Peter. And that is it for this Llama podcast. If you'd like to comment on our conversations about living long and mastering aging, you can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com. Uh, you can also follow us, leave messages on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. And finally, if you'd like to review us on iTunes or your podcasting platform of choice, we'd be very grateful for that. You can also listen to the podcast via TuneIn or Google Play Music. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. -A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.